It is always in America's interest to support democracies at home and abroad. It is the week of December 14th, and welcome to episode 55 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, president of Dealey Mahler Strategies and former director of legislative affairs at the National Security Council. Lester Munson, NSI senior fellow and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And returning guest, Michael Gottlieb, NSI visiting fellow and former associate counsel and special assistant to the president. This week, we're going to start with the National Defense Authorization Act, which has passed both houses and is now sitting on the president's desk. The president has threatened to veto the bill, saying that it benefits China. It seems that the president is saying this because the bill does not repeal protections for big American internet companies, which Trump has called for, and somehow that leads to China winning. I have to confess, I'm not quite catching the logic here. QAnon makes more sense. Stop the steal makes more sense. Lauren, what's your take? What's really going on here? If I knew how to make it make any sense, then uh, I would be shocking myself. Um, I think as with much of what we get out of this White House, what we're seeing is not on its surface, the face value of what we're always getting. What's at stake here is the defense bill, the annual defense bill. Uh, we've passed it for, what is this, 58 59 in a row. Um, there's $740 billion of bipartisan effort that went into this all year. And the president just keeps changing his mind um, by whatever ever flits across his desk about why he should be vetoing it and why we shouldn't have it. Um, there's money, there's authorization in there for our troops, for their families, a 3% pay raise, there's Milcon funding, um, all the things that we do every year because we know we need to, to make us more secure. And it started out with Confederate base naming, and then it became Section 230. The latest is this is all pro-China, uh, despite the fact that it authorizes an entirely new nearly $7 billion fund over the course of two years to deter China um, and rebuild the infrastructure and the assets and our presence over in the Pacific. Um, I I think it's just more bluster coming out of the uh, of the White House, more more middle of the night tweets that aren't necessarily grounded in reality. Jamil, uh, so this is not normally an NDAA issue. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act gives some protection to internet providers. It shelters them from liability for things that are published on their platforms. Would it really be a bad thing to make these companies more accountable for what they publish? Look, I mean, I think there's a debate about Section 230 going on both in Congress um, and the larger community about whether it actually incentivizes uh, providers to uh, to engage in moderation um, and protects them from liability if they moderate the conversations on their platforms. Um, it also does exempt them from liability if they don't do any anything. And so uh, there's this ongoing debate, how much should internet companies do uh, to control the content, address the content, whether we're talking about, you know, hate speech or terrorist content, or disputed things about elections, Russian propaganda. Um, It's not obvious what the right balance is, right? I tend to believe that more speech is better than limiting speech. And that if there's speech you don't like, um, identifying uh, other types of speech that counter it, increasing that level of speech, that's the right approach. Um, I do think that at some level, these uh, these uh, these companies uh, ought to have and do have some responsibility for what's on their platforms, putting aside whether liability is the way to do that, right? I think that there are market, market reasons why they ought to do it. Yeah, but this is an open debate, and Congress has been talking about this 
for the better part of a, a year or two, I'm um, hotly debating it. The idea that you should just sort of solve this problem because Donald Trump doesn't like how Twitter is handling him in the National Defense Authorization Act is a joke and ridiculous and absolutely should not be done. And I'm glad that the committees and and the, both Majority Leader uh, McConnell and Speaker Pelosi said, absolutely not, we're not doing that, as did the chair and ranking members, uh, both Republicans and Democrats of, of the committees on both sides of the Hill. And they've sent the president a veto-proof bill um, that if he vetoes, will almost certainly be overridden. So the question for the president is, does he want to leave office on a loss? Michael, uh, what's what's your take here? Does does the Section 230 issue really have anything to do with China? Why why is the president tweeting about China? Is this just some way to put uh, pressure on right wingers, uh, his his real base in the party, to stick with them on a on a veto override vote? What's what's going on here? You know, I agree completely with Jamil. This is a really serious issue with a serious debate to be had, being handled by a frivolous man on an issue that. It has nothing to do with. Section 230 has absolutely nothing to do, the repeal of it has absolutely nothing to do with China. Uh, But look, I mean, one of the basic principles in a debate is that if you've got a losing argument on the merits, you just change the topic to something else that you think you've got a winning argument on and you try to link the two together. Um, I mean, the essence of the China argument, as I understand it from the reporting, is essentially that Section 230 allows the tech companies to make choices about the speech they regulate, and they've chosen to label Trump's election tweets as misinformation while allowing the you know leaders in China to post stuff on Twitter without censoring them, and then somehow that's unfair. Uh, look, I mean, I think this actually gets all this debate backwards because the real link to uh, China and sort of censorship online is China's government practice of censoring speech that the Communist Party doesn't like. And you get a lot closer to that in a world where you treat uh, you know, tech companies as state-owned entities functionally for purposes of internet regulation. Uh, but look, I think for, for the president and his supporters, it's not really about China. This is just sort of generally um, a signal to the sort of snowflake grievance take on social media that holds that you know, even though on any given day, the top 10 posts on Facebook are from like Ben Shapiro and Dan Bongino, um, even though you have that it's still somehow structurally biased against conservatives. And so they're just playing this out. And maybe it is an effort to hold votes together for override purposes. I don't really know what the psychology behind it is. All I know is it, it doesn't have anything to do with China. So, Jamil, uh, it's, it's really hard to tell what this White House is up to. It seems like uh, at times, the staff is trying to do something that approximates uh, good government or good policy decisions. And then uh, things get suddenly reversed by a tweet uh, from the chief executive. Uh, so they're they're sitting on pins and needles. They don't know what to argue for and what not to argue for because things could change at a moment's notice. Do you think the, the issue here for the president could be some culture battle over Confederate names? What's, it really doesn't seem to make any sense at all. What's your take? Well, the president's certainly drawn battle lines on this issue. He's made clear that he uh, does not support the renaming of these bases. Um, and Congress has made its, its view perfectly clear uh, that they do expect these bases to be renamed and, and the, that in the, uh, the era post the killing of George Floyd, um, that this is no longer acceptable. Frankly, it's not been acceptable since day one. The idea that we have named uh, our military bases around uh, people who rebelled against the union Right. And frankly, who were a lot of these a lot of these people who we've made these bases after were actually terrible military strategists. It's not only that they lost the Civil War, they were bad at the Civil War, the particular people we've made these bases after. So the idea that the president is is defending the naming of these bases. And I mean, it's 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 a joke. Um, It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for Republicans. Um, Republicans should and have run from this issue um, as they should. Um, I recognize that there may be some uh, part of the American community that thinks this makes sense. Um, 
but they are a minority and uh, the president is defending a minority view uh, that's frankly stupid. Um, and uh, and I'm glad that members of Congress in both parties uh, and the leadership of both houses have stood up and said, absolutely not. You want to veto this? Go veto it. We'll override it. You know, it seems to me if you if you really wanted to name military bases after things that happened during the Civil War, you'd be honoring William Tecumseh Sherman and his March to the Sea, which you know was had a, a real definite impact on the uh, the resolution of that conflict. And and you could put those bases in the South. I wonder how people would react to that. Michael, Lauren, either one of you want to weigh in on this issue? I'll weigh in and say I I, I agree with Jamil. It's ridiculous that something that should have been done long before. You don't honor someone for rebelling against the country and losing. That's not how the United States military bestows awards and bestows honors. Um, you, you don't do that. As a Southerner here in this room, I will say that I know a lot of people and I know this issue runs deep and it's more than just military bases. It's more than just names. Um, a lot has been attached to this for right or wrong um, in the you know, intervening decades. So it may be easy for us to sit where we are and say, Haha, let's put a base name Sherman down in it, Georgia and see what happens. It, it's more than that. It means more than that. It has to be taken more seriously than that. But it has to be done. That Those serious conversations have to be had. Well, look, I mean, the idea that the president who hates, quote unquote, military losers, right, wants to continue to name base after the people that lost the goddamn civil war is ridiculous. It's a joke, right? The president he doesn't talks about really like loser. white guys in the military. So there's something um, here. I, I will um, um. I will say that, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of this debate has been played out over and over again. I think what's, I mean, one of the things that is interesting, last to come back to a point you were making before is that it really does make you wonder what the president has out for the NDAA because it can't really be this issue. I mean, the, the, this this can't really be the issue that's that's driving the opposition to it, given the sort of consensus that you see that's bipartisan on base renamings. And I really don't think it's 2.30 in China also. So I do, I mean, I am sort of interested and wish I could better understand what it is that has made the president so intent on uh, you know, waging a losing campaign to veto what has always been thought of as an essential piece of legislation. The presidents, Democratic and Republican, have had to swallow hard and accept provisions that they really don't like. Uh, every year, they accept provisions they don't like because they recognize that this bill is so important for what it does uh, from an overarching perspective. So I, I do wonder what the real issue is here. All right, let's 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 geek out a little bit and talk about another issue here and and norms and this president kind of destroying norms. Uh, it seems to me, uh, and we've talked about this in other episodes, that occasionally that's uh, very useful. I think uh, Trump's approach to the Middle East, which certainly busted through a lot of norms, uh, produced real results. So there was a salutary impact there. In this case, Lauren, as you were pointing out, the the NDA has become law for fifty nine years. It is the primary method by which Congress uh, iteratively imposes its will on the national security space per the Constitution. It has the right to uh, raise armies, maintain navies, fund various government programs, uh, and, and things of that nature. A lot of foreign policy initiatives get attached to NDAA. What's if, if in fact, we have a breach of the norm here, is it a good one or a bad one? Is this what's going to be the longer term impact of a failure for the first time in 60 years of the NDAA going? forward? Well, I think the long-term impact is going to be minimal because I think we're going to get the ship straightened up and get back to regular order pretty fast. 
Um, if this is something that had happened at the start of the administration and actually had time to become something that we ignored and screwed up four years in a row, then it would be a different impact. Um, I think there are a lot of ways that if for some reason this is something the president screws up on his way out the door and it doesn't happen and we miss this, the clock starts over in January. Um, I believe that the national security leadership uh, on the Hill can pull together and still get something done so that everyone's not left hanging until we do this next year. It's not like there's going to be a gap. Um, there's going to be a, a procedural hurdle to overcome. Um, but I think the, uh, the long-term impact will be minimal because this isn't the new norm. It won't be the new norm. Michael, what do you think? Can the, uh, can the Biden administration, if, if, if NDA fails here, can the, the Biden administration get back on the horse and keep this thing moving? I think so, because I don't think this, I, I just think like many things this president, this, this president does, um, it, it's just viewed as extraordinary and sort of out of the uh, boundaries of, of, of normal conduct with respect to legislation like this. I think, look, the one norm that is useful in considering about the NDAA as it um, has existed over the past couple of decades, at least, is like, is it really a good idea uh, for it to be the norm to attach very controversial you know, policy initiatives that are really separate from the appropriations that are necessary to keep the trains, uh, keep the trains running? Like, is, is that really a good thing to have really important policy issues um, attached to these bills as sort of um, poison pill is not the right word, but but uh, an attachment that's really not germane uh, to the appropriation that that the attaching uh, party knows will just get decided because the money has to get approved. And I mean, I think if you had 230 repeal actually attached to this legislation, an interesting norm to break would be to not pass the NDA in order to not have an, a debate of that importance being attached to a non-germane bill. Um, that's a conversation worth having, but it's not the one that we're having right now. Uh, because it's not really what the president is proposing doing. But I, I do think over the long run, it's worth asking questions. I mean, when we were in the White House, the issue that got attached a couple of years in a row was, was Gitmo closure appropriations limitations that were really inserting a big policy debate into the context of necessary appropriations. And doing that over and over and over again as parties you know, change, and change control uh, in Congress and in the White House, I think is not necessarily a healthy thing and, and could be relooked over time. All right. So let me just go on the record as saying I'm totally fine with the Congress jamming whoever the president is on some issues on bills that he has, he or she has to sign. That's totally okay with me. Jamil, I, I want to ask you about a, a more nuanced uh, issue, perhaps, or even weedier, and maybe only I care. But uh, one of the issues with NDAA over time is that they've been stealing jurisdiction from our alma mater there, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, because those committees haven't been legislating much at all. And they've been moving the, the goalposts further and further out on those on their jurisdiction. Those are the armed services committees when they put together this bill. They've been getting into stuff that's really none of their business. Maybe there's some utility in this if they have a little failure here because they didn't negotiate with the White House the right way or they failed to anticipate uh, the crazy spasms from the president. Uh, this gives an opportunity for foreign relations and foreign affairs to get back in the game. What do you think? Look, <clears throat> I would agree with you if there were any chance that the foreign relations and foreign affairs committees were actually going to do that thing, right? But there's no evidence to suggest they're actually going to do it, right? There's no evidence to suggest that the foreign affairs or foreign relations committees have the wherewithal to actually pass an authorization bill, right? I would love that. I'd love it if appropriations committees actually passed real appropriations bills and we didn't just operate by CR, right? 
yet Congress cannot seem to function in any sort of competent way and do its job. I mean, look at look at where we are on coronavirus relief. I mean, it is laughable that Congress cannot get its stuff together to pass another coronavirus relief bill. Americans are suffering economically, and we're and and leaders in D.C. are sitting around dithering. It's a joke. It's embarrassing. It's a product of not just this president, but it's a product of of, of the way that Congress has been functioning for years. Um, and uh, and it's getting worse. And part of it comes, yes, from gerrymandering and safe seats for for Republicans that go that goes too hard right, and safe seats for Democrats go too hard left, and there's very little room for compromise. But the fact of the matter is that Congress is not doing a good job doing the American people's work, and it's not just foreign affairs, and it's not just defense authorization, right? It's across a range of matters, and frankly, Congress needs to get better. And so. While I would love it if the Foreign Relations Committee and Foreign Affairs Committee started to do more and they could pull back some of their jurisdiction, this problem is much larger than those things. And frankly, I think we ought to tackle the fact that we haven't done another coronavirus relief bill and deal with that first and get to a bill that actually helps the American people and then worry about foreign relations and foreign affairs and the encroachment of NDA on that stuff down the road. Grant, you've got the last question for this segment. Yeah, I think I just want to follow up on what Jamil was just saying. Um, the NDAA has definitely gotten kind of too big for its britches and just... Uh, becomes a Christmas tree of every foreign policy issue um, or hobby horse of different uh, groups. What could be done in the next Congress to change uh, this back and forth every year that we do on the NDAA? I'll jump in on that. Um, Maybe not with the answer you're looking for, but I'm going to say nothing. Um, I think that the back and forth just builds a little bit in a slightly different direction than what Jamil was saying, because I, I have a slight, I wouldn't say disagreement, I would say an additional piece to that puzzle that I think is worth looking at. Um, I think the NDAA itself as a vehicle that represents defense and national security is something that began ballooning out of its own jurisdiction back in the early 2000s when we went into Iraq, when we went into Afghanistan, when everything that had to do with foreign policy and diplomacy in the State Department all suddenly became something that the military had to do, which meant it suddenly became something the NDAA had to authorize. And you had people authorizing and writing legislation and the Pentagon digging into all these new areas that weren't traditionally its territory. And all of a sudden, everyone expected it to be done. You know, it's it extended all the way through, I mean, look at the entire public discourse over the last 20 years, you know, military is great as it should be. We respect the troops. We, you know, support everything that the Department of Defense does, sometimes to such an extent that we're willing to allow them to step into other sandboxes and do things that they are not properly equipped and authorized and experienced to do. And we've learned a lot of those lessons. And that still carries over in the NDAA. No one wants to be seen as not supporting the troops and not passing an NDAA. Nobody cares when they go back home whether or not they're seen as supporting the State Department. It's a problem. It's not right. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. So when you have elected officials who know they're going to support a bill, everyone who has something that falls in something that's even remotely connected has to get it in there or it's not going to get done because there's not the political capital to do it. Michael? Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with Lauren in, in terms of what's likely. I mean, I think there's there's you know an infinite number of ways that one could theoretically solve this problem, right? I mean, you have a massive piece of legislation that could be broken up into any number of component parts and then just structured to be considered at different parts during the year rather than at one in, in one year-end process. The problem with that is, though, the incentives are all aligned in a way that make it just not realistic to expect that to take place. I mean, Certainly, um, uh, you know, DOD 
doesn't really have much of an incentive to change the way this is currently uh, structured or considered. And if they don't have that incentive, you know, I, I just don't see it happening. I mean, I suppose if you had a really active um, process from, um, you know, from the EOB to get DOD to structure the way it, per, it per, uh, pursues uh, funding and to break out some of the separate policy initiatives from the NDA, um, you might start to scale it back a little bit. I just don't see it as a likely thing that would happen uh, anytime soon. Yeah, and I would say the the ultimate solution that centrists in both parties have to realize that in order to constrain the worst instincts of presidents from the other party, they need to work together to strengthen congressional involvement here. So Republicans concerned that Obama went too far in making agreements that never would have passed the Senate. Democrats who were very concerned about Trump busting norms and doing things that they felt weren't in the national interest. The way to to regulate that and the way to moderate that is to come together and tie the president's hands, essentially, and give him much less room to run with uh, in the international space. All right, let's, let's move to the second topic, a net assessment of the Trump administration, which, of course, has about a month left here to get anything done. Last week, we saw uh, the administration arrange diplomatic recognition between Morocco and Israel. Uh, In exchange, the administration appears to be recognizing that Western Sahara is uh, is Moroccan territory, which is very new. We have not had that policy from the U.S. uh, uh, ever really. So more about that later. So there are still things going on. I should note uh, that whatever good news uh, we have on the diplomatic front, you want to weigh it with with other developments over the last four years. North Korea's nuclear weapons program is still going strong. Uh, China is more powerful than it's ever been before. Iran continues to subvert our friends and allies in the Middle East, perhaps with a few fewer military leaders than they had a couple of years ago. Uh, But there's, there's a lot of bad news mixed with some good news. Jamil, what's your overall net assessment of Trump administration national security policy? Well, look, I think on certain fronts we've done we've done the right thing, right? I think we've pushed back aggressively on China. We haven't been completely successful, but I think that's been a a uh, important hallmark of the Trump policy. Uh, getting out of the disastrous Iran nuclear deal was exactly the right move. Uh, the the administration is now leaving uh, the Biden team with a very strong uh, negotiating hand. Uh, to get to a much better deal, to be seen whether they'll take advantage of that or squander that opportunity uh, down the road. Um, on other fronts, it's been it's been it's been not great, right? We've talked about pulling out of Afghanistan. We've, we're pulling, we're reducing numbers dramatically there. Um, we're going back to the the Obama administration policy of pulling out of other parts of the Middle East. Um, you know, we've our allies are less, are some of our allies are less comfortable with us uh, because we we've, we've talked about potentially backing off on them. Other allies. Are, are feeling better about us. In particular, Israel, for example, uh, is feeling like we're more there. Some of our allies in, in Asia are feeling like we're more there for them. Um, although I'm not sure Taiwan feels good about any administration. I'm sure they didn't feel good about the prior administration. I'm not sure they feel good about this one. I'm not sure how they feel about the incoming one because it's not clear that, that we, we'd, we'd go to war to defend them if China came across the Taiwan Strait. And that's obviously a huge concern. So look, I think the uh, Joe Biden team, uh, I think Joe, uh, President-elect Biden has put together a very strong national security team. Um, I'm hoping that they will not be uh, an Obama 2.0. I think there's every reason to think that they've learned the lessons of that, um, that they'll be better. Uh, but I do worry, you know, um, uh, there is always this concern about, you know, lawyers being risk averse. And there's a lot of lawyers running around that administration. And so um, as long as they don't end up being hand-wringing lawyers uh, like the prior administration was, I think we could have a, uh, a real opportunity here uh, to move the country forward and frankly, unify the country uh, on a bipartisan basis around things like trying to defend the nation against the very real long-term strategic threat that China poses to our national and economic security. 
Michael, hand-wringing lawyers, pick it up and run with it. Uh, so from the hand-wringing lawyer camp, I would say that uh, the net assessment of the foreign policy of the Trump administration is unmitigated disaster. Is, is that sufficiently hand-wringing enough for you, Jamil? Um, now, look, I mean, how you assess foreign policy is always going to depend on whether you're taking the macro or micro view, and it's going to be sort of filtered through your ideological lenses going in. So, you know, recognizing that, I think for people like me, when you look at the macro level of the Trump foreign policy, it's impossible to view it separate from um, the decimation of American leadership that has taken place, in particular in this last year as a result of a failure to lead on the worst pandemic in over a century that has killed more people uh, in the United States alone than the only uses of nuclear weapons in world history. So this is, this is a disaster that is unfolding every day. There's the economic collapse, the hit to GDP, the total shutdown of our economy, 3,000 people dying a day. I mean, it is a, it is a true disaster and the administration has just not tried to lead on it. And that has led uh, to an acceleration of some trends in terms of the United States standing in the world uh, that, you know, I think should be very troubling for anyone, regardless of what your views were on this administration a year ago. I mean, it, it, you, you can we can have different views on the Iran deal. We can have different views on approach to China and Russia. Um, but our standing with most of our allies in the world, and obviously Israel is an exception to that, but with most of our allies in the world, it's at historic lows. It was, you know, as of this summer, it was 26% in Germany, 33% in Australia, 41% in the UK. These are historic lows for most of these countries, and that's going to take a long time and a big hole for us uh, to dig out of. Now, look, I mean, um, and that comes on, you know, that comes on the back of, um, you know, trashing longstanding international alliances, um, go it alone approaches to a bunch of critically important issues, and then just rank corruption uh, of the Oval Office in what happened with respect to Ukraine, uh, which was cemented uh, a transactional view of U.S. foreign policy that I think will take a really, really long time for us to climb out of. Um, that does not mean that there haven't been successes at the micro level, and I would certainly admit that there have been successes at the micro level, and you can, you can pick out those examples uh, from many places in the world, and some of those have been the result of good policy decisions, and some of them have been the result of luck following bad policy decisions, uh, in, in my view, but, um, but there have been good policy decisions, and there has been progress, and I think that you can uh, build on some of that progress in certain parts of the world. I think, um, uh, you know, uh, China is a, a, a huge problem, but uh, you have to give the administration credit for um, some of the initiatives that it has taken to take on China in, uh, in, in uh, the various forms of competition in which we engage with them. Um, I think, you know, there have been uh, other um, other things that the administration has done that started off, I think, very promising. I think Venezuela was promising at the start and has gone downhill since and now is, is in real trouble. Um, but look, I think, um, and, uh, and I'm not, uh, not keen to get into a debate with Jamil uh, on the Iran deal in this, uh, in this podcast, uh, but I think at the bottom line is um, at that macro level, it's just impossible to assess this administration without uh, thinking about the, the failure of U.S. leadership on what is a truly historic pandemic and I think that's going to overshadow all of the sort of bright spots for foreign policy for uh, when history looks back at this administration. Michael, that was a that was a tour de force. Uh, well done, sir. Lauren, what's what's your reaction to to Michael's take? Any differences? And is and do you see what's your perception of the good things from the Trump administration that perhaps uh, President Biden could actually pick up and advance the ball on? So 
I agree with a lot of what Michael said, particularly in the way that we look at how we evaluate the Trump administration on national security, um, whether we look at it from a macro view or a micro view. That from a macro perspective, 100% agreement, disaster. But there are little micro, I don't know, micro issues here and there where something went right. Um, you know, we'd rather be lucky than good. Maybe they were both, maybe they were one, maybe they were the other. But I think on things like um, election security, look at the way the CISA office has grown, um, what they're able to do, and the some of the increases in um you know, public-private information sharing, just overall cybersecurity coming out of that particular office in specific areas. I think that's something that can be built on and expanded. Um, that would be really beneficial. Um, I agree that there's so much work that has to be done uh, around the globe on rebuilding alliances and getting back into and working to strengthen from the inside uh, international organizations and institutions that we've just abandoned. Um, I, I think there are so, all of these things are so interconnected across all these issues that one bright spot here and there is not enough to pull the whole thing up to a level of success and comfort. Do I feel like we're safer now than we were four years ago? Absolutely not. Um, am I encouraged that the team coming in sees that and understands what I believe it will take to get us to that place and knows enough and I agree has learned enough of the lessons from uh, previous times to be able to take this opportunity right now where literally everything has been blown up and the norms that we were just talking about have been blown out of the water and say, okay, how are we going to rebuild these things in a safer, smarter way? Um, I don't think we're just going to go back to business as usual. I think, I don't know what the solutions will be, but I think that having people in place who understand the need to look at things from a new perspective in a smarter way um, is going to be really beneficial in the long term. Having a sense of credibility and predictability coming from the infrastructure um, is going to be great. You know, I, I uh, for what it's worth, I agree with a lot of the criticism of the administration. There were a lot of mistakes made and uh, some of the things that were said about allies and friends were utterly unnecessary and stupidly provocative uh, and not at all helpful. I do think, though, that some of the achievements are on more than just the kind of the micro level or the mini level. The, the changes in the Middle East are are dramatic and significant. And I hope it's something that the, that the, the very good folks in the Biden administration who are coming in can can advance and make more real and and perhaps there is a chance at a real agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia which would be a, a really just a tremendous development and I don't care who gets credit for it but that that would be a real difference maker in the world and and further I think uh, you know kudos to Trump on China which he got completely wrong initially tariffs are a bad idea his praise of Xi Jinping was terrible. But in the end, he did realize that it was more of a threat than an opportunity. Uh, and, and that's something that the Biden administration, I think, will be able to take uh, and use as leverage to, to its advantage. So I, I think the accomplishments are significant. Are they as significant as the, the problems the president unnecessarily created? I don't think so, but I'm, I'm willing to wait a few years to see uh, how things shake out. All right. Grant, uh, over to you for uh, the last question in this segment. So I want to go around the horn and sort of take stock of our allies and adversaries and say, uh, each of you to say, which uh, ally 
putting aside Israel, because I think we can all agree uh, Trump has done the most when it comes to Israel. Uh, what ally has uh, seen the biggest boost from a Trump administration and which enemy has seen the biggest boost from a Trump administration, starting with you, Lester? Oh, man, that's tough. So I think the, the enemy that's um, uh, done the best during the Trump administration, ironically, is North Korea, uh, which has thrived during these insane negotiations. The administration arranged for these showpiece things where the president was trying to persuade uh, Kim Jong-un that real estate development in North Korea and, and pursuing a tourist economy was somehow a way to uh, get nuclear weapons out of his hands. Uh, completely bananas. Um, uh, North Korea advanced the ball uh, significantly down the field for its own purposes. I think the uh, some of the countries that did well that you don't normally hear about Brazil, um, which is which is a hugely important country uh, in our hemisphere, uh, did pretty well by this administration, unexpectedly so. Um, does that, that really matter in the grand scheme of things for U.S. national security? Perhaps not, but uh, maybe 50 years from now, uh, Brazil's relationship is much more significant than it is now. So I guess I'll, I'll name those two. Who wants to go next? Lauren, you want to go next. So I think I have a slightly different take on that. Uh adversaries who have benefited question. I think uh, Russia and China are going to have to thumb wrestle to see who wins that crown. Um, Because I think that China has benefited, obviously, and we've been talking about them throughout this entire conversation about how they've strengthened um, their role in the world. The fact that we're we're considering them as something that will be driving and shaping uh, national security interests going forward. Um, I think Russia as well. I mean, Russia's kind of been a theme that has woven itself throughout this administration in different ways. Um, and I think one of their main long-term objectives is to be seen as equal. And we have given them that. Michael. Yeah, I think um, I think the winner is Russia among the adversaries. Uh, it's They've won in terms of our di- disengagement with NATO, our um, weakening of alliances that had contained Russian influence, our um, lack of pursuit of arms control initiatives that are now um, threatened um, through election interference, through sowing disinformation in our country, aided um, by at times by the president and some of the president's political allies. Um, it's hard to think of another adversary. I, I mean, I, I don't disagree that North Korea has also strengthened its hand, but uh, Russia has really triumphed uh, in the last several years in some of its really key strategic objectives in terms of destabilizing the United States and the norms and structures on which we rely in the international system and the international order. And I think um, those are going to be very, very hard gains to fight back. Um, uh, on the ally side, excluding Israel just really removes, you know, a myopic focus on that. So um, uh, I, I agree with Brazil. Um, I think the, to the extent one thinks of the um, diaspora and the opposition in Venezuela as, uh, as an ally, it's hard to think of any sort of group that has uh, perhaps benefited in stature internationally uh, as much as the opposition in Venezuela has benefited from the support of the Trump administration. So I might nominate them uh, on the ally side. Mr. Jaffer. So look, I mean, I think I think uh, Lauren is right about Russia. Russia has looked like the seven foot tall or 15 foot or 20 foot tall giant, even though they're a they're a, a, a piddling economy that is that turns completely on uh, oil revenue. Um, they are a they are a minor world power, if if even you can call them a world power, 
they seek to, uh, you know, uh, expand their their influence abroad, and we've allowed them to. The Obama administration allowed them to walk into Crimea and left that unchallenged. The Trump administration has given them altogether too many opportunities uh, to play, whether it's in the Middle East um, or or, or um, uh, elevating their role in um, in, in in elections uh, and the like, and so. Um, and, and frankly, preferring them over our intelligence community and the like has been a complete error. The Russians have benefited the most. I think that their uh, covert influence operations in the 2016 elections, as well as the 2020 elections, have been phenomenally effective, probably the most effective in the history of mankind. I mean, I think we'll go down in history as that, um, but due in large part to our own behavior uh, on both sides of the aisle, as well as by, from our media. And so I think uh, that's a huge um, issue. In terms of our allies, I think a benefit, I actually uh, think India has been the biggest beneficiary of the Trump administration. One, uh, we've seen an increasingly uh, closer relationship uh, with uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi and his government um, and India writ large. I think our pushback on China, um, which I don't agree with Lauren, that China's benefit. I think China has actually been punched in the teeth by the administration, um, and, and rightly so. And I hope that the Biden administration uh, sees clear to continue that effort and double down on it. Um, in ways that the that the prior uh, Democratic administration, the Obama administration, uh, completely failed to do, including on cyber issues. Um, and so uh, I'm hopeful, uh, and I think that the uh, the Indians who have always been hoped to be a bulwark against uh, Chinese expansion uh, in the region, um, actually now having seen what's happened on their on their border, um, are ready to play that role uh, both for their own purposes, uh, but because it's an important role for them to play in the region. Um, you know, we'll see if that happens. The Indians love to tout their uh, non-aligned uh, role, even though that's, that's not actually really where they are. Uh, but we'll see what happens to that going forward. But I think they've been the biggest beneficiaries, putting aside Israel, um, of the Trump administration's policies uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Asia region. So you are all wrong. The uh, biggest uh, gains from an adversary is actually uh, the Trump administration's continued support for democratic corruption or uh, democratic backsliding, whether that is in Eastern and Central Europe with Hungary and Poland, whether that is in India with supporting a Hindu nationalist state or elsewhere. It is always in America's interest to support democracies at home and abroad, and it is a complete failure of the United States to prevent uh, democratic backsliding. Uh, the uh, ally, and I use the ally in quotes here, that has benefited the most is clearly Saudi Arabia. Uh, the United States has done nothing to push back against uh, MBS's um, overreaches, whether that's the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey or uh, in his brutal uh, repression of democratic activists in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so they have benefited greatly under this administration. And I hope that the Biden administration takes a new stance. All right, Grant, my insolent friend, uh, we're going to let you go first on the third topic. Why don't you uh, tell us what issue you're tracking that's not necessarily on the front page? Yeah, this week I'm following China and Australia relations. Uh, relations have hit a new low after Zhao Lijian, the spokesperson for China's foreign ministries, uh, tweeted a stylized image of a grinning Australian soldier holding a bloodstained knife to the throat of an Afghan child. Uh, so this image was in reference to a report from Australia's own government, which found that Australian troops unlawfully killed 39 Afghan prisoners and civilians. However, this is just the latest in a string of incident incidents involving journalists being jailed or investigated, tariffs, and 
allegations of economic dumping on both sides. None of this should come as a surprise, as Australia has begun to shift its stance on China through the enactment of a foreign interference law and by aggressively pushing for an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. This is not the first, and it definitely won't be the last time China will be throwing its weight around economically to put pressure on American allies. As foreign policy continues to become focused on economics, it's vital that the Biden administration take this time, potentially over a glass of Australian wine, to figure out what a new approach to supporting our allies can be. Lauren? I am following along with both professional and personal interest in the reports that we're seeing about the dramatic increases of ransomware attacks on K-12 through schools. So much more on the, the Homeland Security side here. But, um, you know, having kids in school right now, is a challenge. Everything's virtual. Everything's remote. It all started back in March. Um, and we, you know, the, the cybersecurity infrastructure across the kindergarten through 12, the K-12 school uh, structure here in the U.S. Is, is not known for being stellar. Um, it's always been a bit of a, of a soft target. And, you know, we've, we've pretty much dealt with all of it um, from, you know, online classes being hacked into back in March when this all started, you know, so much of the virtual learning has become standard um, in some way, shape or form, whether it's hybrid, full-time, whatever it is, most students at some point are virtual right now. And it's just creating such a crime of opportunity. Um, the latest report, MSI Sec said uh, 57% of their ransomware attacks that they're tracking are schools now. And that's a significant increase over where it has been previously. So interested to see how that plays out and what we can all do to harden up that security infrastructure. Um, this doesn't necessarily look like it's going to change anytime soon. So we got to got to keep our kids, their info, ourselves safe in the long term. Michael. Yeah, the news that broke just before we started has caused me to ditch my otherwise prepared remarks and let you all know that I'm following closely the news that President Trump plans to pardon Julian Assange before uh, he leaves office. And in light of uh, the fallout from the SolarWinds hack and Russia's uh, involvement in that, um, I am quite interested in the coalition uh, of individuals that uh, are mobilizing and acting to try to secure uh, this pardon for uh, Mr. Assange from President Trump before he leaves office, that strange coalition to include uh, the sort of usual suspects, Roger Stone, Dana Rohrabacher, anti-United States uh, peace activists, uh, champions of the First Amendment, uh, Edward Snowden himself, ministers of parliament from Australia, and then, of course, most notably, Pamela Anderson, who several days ago sent out a bikini-clad uh, message on Twitter, at POTUS, please pardon Julian Assange. Uh, so this is the group of individuals who are uh, pardoning, uh, moving to pardon uh, Julian Assange, who uh, earlier in the administration uh, and Secretary of State Pompeo labeled as a hostile foreign intelligence service. Uh, but it appears uh, now that this is likely to happen. Uh, and if it does happen, I'll be uh, following if uh, Snowden is next. Uh, and what a pardon for Assange would mean uh, for the resurgence of WikiLeaks and the sort of thorn in the side that has been to the intelligence community, to uh, the United States government and the work that it does uh, in various hotspots around the globe. Great issue. Uh, I, I suspect 
the president's going to lose a lot of support with uh, conservative national security Republicans if that happens. Jamil. Yeah, just to just to Mike's point, uh, and I'll go to my, my topic, um, it would be outrageous if the president uh, did pardon Julian Assange. I'm actually hearing uh, that that may have been a false story put out by uh, by the president's quote-unquote pastor, um, and he may have withdrawn it. I, I, again, still TBD will, he will know more as the news breaks, but it would be outrageous. The president uh, previously had mentioned that uh, it's just that he might consider a pardon of, of Edward Snowden. That would ask, absolutely also be outrageous. Edward Snowden is a traitor, um, and he betrayed the United States in, in, in many, many different ways, uh, revealing all sorts of information that has nothing to do with Americans uh, or our intelligence collection um, in the United States, but actually ca- capabilities that are, that are adversaries, that we use against our adversaries. Um, and so uh, either one of those things would be completely outrageous and, and appalling. With respect to the issue that I'm tracking, um, I'm tracking a recent attack uh, just just uh, uh, happening today um, in a Saudi Arabian port um, as part of the uh, Yemen war against a a, a Singaporean oil tanker. Um, again, looks like potentially uh, the Houthi rebels uh, being backed by Iran uh, potentially engaged uh, yet again um, in coming after um, uh, oil shipping in the region. Uh, very problematic. Um, and yet again, just another example of Iran's bad behavior, likely bad behavior in the region. Again, uh, no, no proof right now that it was that it was in fact Iran or the Houthis, but certainly looks that way, at least from early early reporting. The uh, the issue I'm tracking, as I kind of hinted earlier, is the U.S. recognition of Moroccan sovereignty over Western Sahara. Uh, I've I've traveled to Western Sahara uh, many years ago, a couple of times. The Sahrawi people are very beleaguered. They've made a series of bad decisions about who their friends are. I think their second best friend is Cuba, but their first best friend is Algeria. Algeria is a big country. A lot oil resources, very important for the stability of North Africa. Morocco had recognized Israel uh, several decades ago and then rescinded it. Uh, This is not the first time uh, this issue has happened. Okay, Uh, that is a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for engineering, Michelle Story for research assistance, and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for being an assertive... uh, Uh, producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.